this episode of the BCEN and Friends podcast. Our guest today is Sean Cavanaugh, a gifted storyteller who combines humor and professional stories that captivate audiences everywhere. Today, Sean will share his personal story about the risk of falling physically, professionally, and metaphorically, and how we can heal and learn from each fall we take. Our hosts today are Bridget Flood, Director of Strategy and Operations at the BCEN, and Janie Shoemaker, the Executive Director of the BCEN. Bridget and Janie, take it away. Hi, and welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast. I'm Bridget Flood, Director of Strategy and Operations at BCN, and I'm joined by my co-host, Janie Shoemaker, Executive Director. Hey, Janie. Hi, Bridget. Um, So as you know, the BCN and Friends podcast is where we have interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals. And most importantly, to create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, but always valuable. So Janie, today we have another new friend with us, Sean Cavanaugh. Sean has a really interesting story that we can all learn from. Sean lectures and speaks on the topic of fall risk. I know our nurses listening recognize those two words, but for Sean, falling is inevitable. A life of purpose happens by learning from our falls, not simply avoiding them. A performer with stand-up experience, a training industry entrepreneur, cyclist, husband, father, and grandfather, Sean brings a wealth of humor, stories, and audience involvement to every engagement. For the past 20 years, Sean ran the Aerial Group, an international firm that trains leaders in interpersonal communications. His clients included leaders in business, nonprofits, government, and healthcare. He has taught storytelling to social entrepreneurs, military veterans, MBA students, and college graduates. Sean believes that how we heal from our falls, both real and metaphorical, um, and what we learn from them, that is truly what makes us who we are. So Sean, welcome. Thank you, Bridget. It's very nice to be here. Um, Thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, I'm not sure I that I have very much to add to your eloquence. Okay, because I was just going to ask, did I miss anything um, <laughs> out of this like amazing um, attributes of your career? So this is the fun part, Sean, um, because this is where you get to tell us a little bit about yourself, especially I'm really intrigued with how you went from storytelling to stand-up comedy to running an international training company and now um, having your own speaking practice. So could you give us a little background on that? I'd be happy to. I was actually born to a storytelling family. Um, You may be able to tell that uh, I'm a a naturalized American. I was born in the UK, actually in Liverpool. And when I was a a young child, my father was a stand-up comedian. He was part of a double act. He and my godfather, David Dunn. Kavanaugh and Dunn, they were called. Two likely lads from West Derby was their, was their subtitle. My father ended up 
going into business, into sales. He was a natural communicator. He was very good at building relationships and he became a very successful business person. And we ended up moving from the UK to Belgium. And then I came to the US to um, an American college. Storytelling was, it was on the menu for each dinner we spent at home. My father would tell stories and then he would require us to tell them as well. And so I got my education, I went into business, I went into sales myself. And in 1999, I was introduced to a small organization called the Aerial Group. This company was founded by two women, Kathy Lubar and Belle Halpern, who were trained professional actors who ended up going into creating a business to teach business people how to communicate more effectively using their skills from the stage. And they hired me to do business development and I was there for 20 years and we grew the company quite significantly. What I realized shortly after joining that business is that what we were teaching in the form of well-structured organized workshops for business people and consultants and leaders was what I had learned at the dining room table from my father. It was that ability to understand an audience, to tell a compelling story, to have the level of confidence to speak in front of a group of people. It was naturally in me. And so I really found a wonderful professional home where I was able to combine my business communication skills with my family history of, of storytelling and performing with um, a need in the business place for authentic communication. So. Uh, that was how I, I guess that does answer your question. I went from a storyteller as a kid to this uh, training company. And now I'm, I've started my own business practice. I'm effectively retired. I like to say that I'm virtually retired because everything is virtual these days, right. Um, right. which means I'm not actually retired. In fact, because of the virtual world, I suppose it's impossible to be retired, but I love the fact that I am actually sitting now in my cottage looking over a little lake in New Hampshire and I'm having the opportunity to communicate virtually with you and to everyone who will ultimately listen to this right. podcast. That is very true and you know just from what you said I think you know how interesting that that dinner table conversation turned into something so important for the rest of your life so you just never know so thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to move on to a specific date, a little over four years ago, August 17th, 2016, your world really did change. Um, can you tell us what happened that day? Well, actually I can, Bridget. I'd like to say that I remember that day really well, but in fact, I don't. I don't remember anything about what happened on that day. I was in a bad accident of which I have no memory. However, I have pieced together the story from my family, from eyewitnesses uh, with whom I've become friends um, over the years. So it was, a, it was a morning, not unlike today, actually. It was a warm summer morning, uh, mid-August, and I decided I was gonna ride my bicycle to work from my home in uh, Carlisle, Massachusetts to my office in Lexington. This was about a 15 mile ride and I'd done it a lot. I was an avid cyclist and at 62 years old, which is how old I was then, um, I used to ride a lot to stay in shape. I'd completed most of the ride. I was about a mile from my office and I was coasting down a hill, enjoying a nice 
downhill treat after having gone up the hill on the other side. And I was thinking about what I had to do at work. And all of a sudden, I was hit head on by a pickup truck coming in the opposite direction. According to eyewitnesses, I flew 20 feet through the air at about the height of a street sign and landed on my head. And uh, I was very badly injured. Witnesses on the scene recounted that I, they couldn't feel my pulse. At the time, I was bleeding from a compound fracture in my leg. I was unconscious. I had a traumatic brain injury. I had blood clots. I had broken ribs. I had broken bones in my hands. I was a complete mess lying there on the side of the road. And I was taken from there to uh, the emergency room where I spent two weeks in a coma. My family came and sat by my side. My poor wife was alerted to the accident by a knock on the door by a policeman who said, you need to go to the hospital because your husband has been badly injured in a bicycle accident. And she said, can you tell me how badly he's been hurt? And they said, all I can tell you is that he was alive at the scene. Oh. I can't imagine more ominous words than that. Um, so she had to drive to the hospital wondering how I was and bless her, wondering how, if I was very badly injured and didn't make it, how she was going to tell my mother what had happened to me. So that was, that was, the, that was a turning point day uh, in my life. That was the day that this notion of, well, actually not that day. During my recovery from that accident is, is, when, I, um, is when I started to think about the new story that I had to tell. And what's the first thing you remembered when you did wake up in the hospital? Yes, it was a very interesting, it was a very interesting day. Um, I believe it was an evening, it was, it was dark. Um, and I woke up in the rehab hospital. I spent two weeks in intensive care, mostly in a coma, coming in and out of a coma. But the first thing I really remember was waking up in the rehab hospital, which is Spalding Rehab in Boston, Massachusetts. I woke up in this dark room. I went to sit up, but I was in an, ex an extreme pain. My leg hurt, my head hurt. Um, I had uh, a breathing tube in my mouth and it was dark. But I realized I've clearly been injured. This is clearly a hospital room because I could see the, the green lights of the, of the heart rate monitor blinking. Um, and then I noticed something on my wrist and it was a bracelet that you referenced earlier with these words on it, the words fall risk. And it was noticing that bracelet that got my attention. I mean, clearly, I'm sure uh, you and all of your nurse colleagues understand what the fall risk bracelet means. It means this guy should not get out of bed. He is not safe to walk around. He'll fall over and hurt himself even worse than he is already. Uh, I also have a suspicion that the legal department of many hospitals have something to do with uh, wanting people to, to attach that warning to the risks of, uh, of full risk patients because uh, they don't want me to jump up and fall down and then sue the hospital. So yeah, I think, you know, that day and the two words on that bracelet um, really came to define who you are now um, and came to set you on this current journey. Um, so can you talk a little bit more, more about um, those two words, foul risk and sure. 
how you now view that. Yeah. Well, I kept, I kept looking at the bracelet every day. And for the first few days, I really couldn't move. My leg was in traction. Um, I, was, I was basically stuck in this bed. But I realized very soon that I actually needed to do the opposite of what that bracelet said. I needed to risk falling. That was the conclusion I drew. And I kept that bracelet on my wrist, even when I became better at walking around. I actually have it framed um, in my office, the, the original bracelet. Um, because what I realized is that while, no, I wasn't going to go dancing down the corridor or out riding my bike right away, but I needed to take small risks to heal. If I had accepted that label, I could have sat there very comfortably and looked out the window and I would not have risked falling whatsoever. But would I have gotten any better? Would I have gotten stronger? How would I have felt emotionally if I had just decided I was going to consign myself in my early 60s to the status of a fall risk and possibly an invalid? So I didn't want to do that. I was also very lucky to be encouraged by many of the staff at the rehab hospital to take small risks. And the first ones were really um, sitting up straight in bed. That was quite painful, but I was encouraged to sit up straight in bed and then to swing my legs over the side of the bed and then to walk a few steps being held by, um, by somebody in the room, uh, uh, one of the nurses probably, and walked to the bathroom so I could, could shower by myself. And then it was, then, you know, then it was the walker. Uh, well, first it was the, the wheelchair, then it was the walker, and then it was two crutches, and then it was one crutch, and then a cane. Um, and each one of those steps involved taking small risks. And I knew that I wanted to. I knew that I wanted to spend this time to get well again. Um, but it was important that I had help. It was important that people were encouraging me, empathizing with me, understanding that I was a frustrated, active person, and uh, I wanted to get back into uh, back into life again and so fall risk became a catchphrase the 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 wrist bracelet became sort of a talisman for me um and uh, i used it to to motivate me to uh to keep living and isn't that isn't that what life is all about right we have to take risks and uh as we have to encourage others to take to, to risk falling too I think it's particularly true for parents. I think there's a tendency these days for many of us to want to keep our children completely safe. And of course, that is a natural desire. However, sometimes we just need to go let them play in the park by themselves with their friends. Maybe they will come back with a scraped knee or a sunburned nose, but I bet they'll have a smile on their face and I bet they will have learned something about themselves. So it's that balance between not living a risky life um, not being foolhardy, but encouraging people to take the small risks so that we learn, improve, grow, learn new things, try new things, make new friends. Life is one long full risk. And I say, let's embrace it. Yeah, there's two things about what you just said. So um, the first one is, is, you know, when I first heard about your story and then the fall risk, I was thinking, you know, it's big falls and big risks. And then the more, you know, I hear what you've done and what you're doing, it's not so much the big fall and the big risk. It's the everyday 
take the risk, you might fall and you might learn from that fall, right? And yeah. is that your definition of, you know, fall risk? I think risk is a very interesting concept. Um, researchers will say that risk is often amplified in our minds to be something greater and maybe in some cases less than what it really is. Um, we all are worried about taking risks in, in a variety of different ways. Um, and I think that most of the time, the fall that we're trying to avoid is probably less of a fall than we thought it was going to be yeah. in the first place. And also, interestingly, something that can be very re rewarding and something that we can gain something from. I mean, I think of, you know, asking that first person out um, who you are interested in getting to know better. That's a big risk for everyone. And the fall, of course, is embarrassment or a lack of confidence. And it seems, you know, terrible. I mean, certainly remembering my adolescence, I can remember that was probably the scariest thing I would ever uh, try to do. Right. And as I look back, of course, those falls were not as bad as they could have been. Um, and the rewards for taking these risks were meeting a new person, perhaps meeting someone who would become your partner for life, who knows. But, uh, but yes, it's all sorts of little things that we do every day. And some people are very afraid of some of the simplest things and other people perhaps are not afraid enough. So I don't want to, I, I keep wanting to say, I don't want people to, I'm not suggesting we all jump off buildings in a, in a, uh, you know, in a squirrel suit and fly right. down to land. Right. Um, and I think, you know, thinking about um, our audience, you know, you know, one of the risks that they may be thinking about taking is, you know, getting certified and that can be terrifying. Yes. So I think this might have some, you know, meaning for them as they, they listen through this. Um, and then I'll just share a little story and it was kind of my aha moment. Um, years ago, I was sitting at one of those children's adventure parks, um, watching the kids and they'd harness them in and they'd put them in the air and they'd have to navigate um, walking ropes and moving objects. And most of the kids, and they had trampolines below them and padding below that. And they were, you know, hooked up to high wires. So nothing was going to happen to these kids. But most of these kids acted like they were afraid to fall and they were very timid about trying to do this or out and out scared. But every now and then you'd see a couple of these kids like realize like, I'm not going to hurt myself. And they would just go for it. And I thought, isn't this life? Very rarely will we fall and really hurt ourselves. There's too many people around us to make to have that happen um you know occasionally you might but really we should just kind of go for it um so anyway that's my little story about that <laughs> that's a great metaphor right isn't isn't life just one big ropes course yes, yes. <laughs> and some people you know charge ahead and try new things and some people say you know what i'm kind of comfortable right here at this level platform and bless them if you're comfortable in that way and and, and you, you feel fulfilled fine there's not there's there's no shame in that um however maybe you're missing out on some of the rewards of uh, of reaching for that higher rope yeah 
Well, Sean, I would like to say that I, I it's, it's not often that, that um, those of us nurses that are listening that, that are likely working in the emergency department or maybe in the trauma unit, uh, maybe in emergency transport, um, you know, we, we would have taken care of you those first few hours or days of your injury. And it sounds like you had quite the, quite the long road in healing. Um, <clears throat> and so it's, it's really nice to be able to hear the patient's side of the story and how that was for you. Um, it sounds like it was um, a long and difficult road, but you've obviously overcome and been very successful in your recovery I'm just wondering for those nurses that are listening, is there anything that you would like them to take away from your story from the patient perspective? Um, I realize that a lot of our nurses may not have been the ones you spent the most time with, mm -hmm. um, but they were probably some of the nurses that really started your healing process as you arrived um, into the hospital. Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you. I never really got the chance to find out who the nursing staff were and to go back and to say thank you. Uh, there's one nurse in particular that I'd like to say thank you to, but I'd also like to say, how come you had to cut my brand new biking shorts with scissors and force <laughs> me to buy a new pair? <laughs> yeah. I kept those as a, as a souvenir for a while, but then I realized that's just a little bit morbid. So I've, <laughs> I've, I've thrown them away, but yes, I, I clearly got great care, um, great care from, the nurses who took care of me that day. I'm sure my life was saved that day um, by the nurses and, and the treatment that, uh, that they provided. Um, and I've been making the distinction between fixing and healing. I think you need both to, you know, to fully recover. Uh, that, but I needed to be fixed first, right? I needed the bleeding to stop. I needed to figure out what was going on uh, in my head. And so there were some great healthcare providers that day from the, you know, the EMTs that came to pick from the volunteer firefighter who stopped and was taking care of me. He stopped on his way to uh, take his daughter to camp and he stopped and take care of me on the side of the road to the uh, EMTs and the ambulance to, to the, the uh, emergency room nurses and doctors. And um, so they, uh, they fixed me. They were the first, but that was the first step in my healing process. The next step is about healing. And that's what I was aware of, right? I was unconscious that day and for two weeks. And when I woke up, I realized that now is time for me to start the healing process, which is to do with the fall risk and taking fall risks and being encouraged to do that. However, I'm quite sure that had I had any kind of consciousness at all, there would have been some healing and some fixing going on in that emergency room. Uh, what I would have wanted to hear, and I'm sure all of you do this very often, is, and you know, I've got your hand, buddy. You're going to be okay. You know, I know it hurts, but um, you know, you're strong. You're fit. You're going to make it. There's, you know, I would want to be encouraged, and I'm absolutely convinced that. Perhaps they were even saying that to me, even though uh, I, couldn't, um, I couldn't hear it. So two things really, thank you for fixing me and thank you for being the first step on my um, healing journey that allowed me to be where I am today, four years later, where uh, I actually went for a, uh, a 20 mile bike ride yesterday. So I'm back on my bike, my sense of balance is back 
and um, I couldn't be there without the fixers and the healers. And sometimes, as with emergency room nurses, they can be one and the same person. Um, and in my case, they were two separate groups just because of the nature of my injury. Yeah. Wow, that's a remarkable um, story. And it's really great to hear that you're taking a 20-mile bike ride. That truly is a huge success story. And I know we're all we're all um, so excited to hear that. Um, and I'm sure those nurses were telling you everything was going to be okay. Uh, because as nurses, even though we um, are not sure someone can hear us, we always assume you can. And so often we will talk to our patients uh, in that mm -hmm. way. And if they're not responding. So I'm sure you had a good group of nurses and doctors and everybody else rooting for you. I'm absolutely convinced that somewhere some of the positive vibes and the positive words registered in my head. Yeah. Uh, my children, uh, when I was in intensive care and unconscious, would play music, play songs that they knew I would recognize. Mm -hmm. And occasionally I would open my eyes and start singing. I don't have any recollection of this, but apparently they played a lot of Beatles music. And I woke up one day and pulled out my feeding tube and started singing <laughs> yesterday at full volume off key in my croaky raspy voice which uh, made them all uh, both smile and cry at the same time yep the the, the intensive care uh, team they're really good at talking to their patients and, mm. and getting some of those things they want to get you get you healed up too um so sounds like from from door to door you had a great team and even even the guy that stopped while he was taking his daughter to camp thank goodness yep. for him right um, I, I love this. I love this concept that you have about uh, the fall risk and and how how sometimes you need to take some risks. And so I know some of our nurses listening. Uh, I think Bridget mentioned earlier. Maybe they're considering uh, taking a certification exam. That scares people to death sometimes because they're afraid they're going to fail. And Lord help us if somebody finds out that we took the exam and we failed or. Maybe they're trying to get uh, a next step in their career and they're not quite sure if they're ready. They're not sure if they have what it takes. And mm -hmm. um, what would you say? What would you say as a takeaway? What's a good life lesson um, that they can apply that you've learned that they could apply to their own life as they're considering what their next fall risk is? Mm, right. Well, um, first of all, uh, I should probably refer this question to my wife, Donna who um, during all of this was actually in nursing school to become a nurse herself. So in her early 50s, she had been, she was an English major and had been an editor for medical journals. And then she decided, you know, I, I, I won't, I'm going to take the risk to get into the medical field. And so she trained to become a nurse. She became an RN right around the time of my accident. And Right now, she is finishing up her clinical hours and will be joining me secluded in the cabin and studying for her exam to be a nurse practitioner shortly. So um, there's a, a short story that might be um, inspirational. I think that, oh, there's a couple of things. There's, there are three things really um, that I think that are, that are life lessons for me. One is the basic full risk lesson. Um, and that became, I think I became more willing um, and interested in taking risks because one of the things about the accident, one of the lessons was that I learned that life is, life is precious. 
Now that is a, um, you know, that's a little bit of a cliche um, and it, 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 it shouldn't take, you know, getting run over by a pickup truck to make you realize that. But what I realized was on that day, I was granted extra innings, you know, the, the firefighter said he couldn't feel my pulse when he got there, but I'm now you know, alive and kicking. And so I realized that there's no time to waste. And so I think part of it is to try to develop the determination to do something that you are passionate about and that is useful in the time that we have here on this earth. And I realized that, yes, I was pleased with and passionate about the work that I had done, but I wanted to do more. I wanted to keep going. I wanted to find ways to be, uh, to be busy, to be engaged, and to be useful. So I think the fact that time is precious, and we have to, we never know what tomorrow is going to is going to bring. I mean, who knew that we would be forced to be having these conversations um, over the internet versus live because COVID has presented itself as a as a global trauma. So that's the one thing. You know, use every use every day as as usefully as possible. People often say use every day as if it is your last, but but what but there's an interesting exercise I've heard people do in the learning industry where they say, imagine you've been given X amount of time to live. What would you do? Um, well, I certainly have wouldn't wouldn't sit, you know, sit in bed looking out the window. I would want to use my time as effectively as possible, doing what I was passionate about, being honest and kind and loving to the people within whom I was with in relationship, those kinds of things. Um, and of course, Forest requires encouragement and empathy uh, from other people as well. So um, I would say if you're about to embark on it, certainly you want to have independence and strength but look to your network of, of friends and family for encouragement. Let people in on what your plans are so that you don't have to muster the encouragement all by yourself, that you can, that, that you can lean on others to do that. And I certainly had a ton of that as I was coming back from my injury. I had the support of my family and of my friends and uh, uh, my work colleagues and, and all those. So that, you know, that was, uh, that was, really essential, I think. Um, although some people are, are very independent and, and perhaps don't need it. Um, and then think about what's the worst you can happen if you take this risk to try something new, right? You're, you're going to fall. It's not, you know, it's not going to be a life-threatening fall. And uh, maybe you'll learn something about yourself that might be, boy, I, I did something that I didn't think I could do. I'm glad I took the risk and I learned something about myself. It's a step forward, even if there may be temporary uh, setbacks along the way. So, yeah, yeah there's really three great tangible takeaways that I think people can can apply. And um, I, I often too think that sometimes when we do take a risk and we make that fall, I feel like that's when we really grow the most and learn the most. Mm. Uh, do you do you think that's true, Sean? You know, I do. And this was made very clear to me during a lot of time I spent with a psychiatrist when I was in the rehab hospital. A couple of times a week, I would be 
wheeled literally down the hall and into the elevator and down to the fourth floor, the psychiatry floor, and I would meet with Dr. Chris Carter, and he was wonderful. And one day I noticed that he was talking about, he kept referring to my trauma. And he would say, well, you know, your trauma has impacted your life in this way, and your trauma will have an impact on your family. And how are you going to deal with your trauma as you re-enter into your professional life, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, um, are you, this is very interesting. You keep talking about trauma. Are you treating me for PTSD? Do I have PTSD? And he said, no, I don't. You don't, he said. Many people do. And he gave me the data of all of the traumatic experiences people go through. 80% um, of Americans will be involved in some kind of a trauma. 20% of those people are defined negatively by it, which means they have post-traumatic stress disorder nightmares and fears and uh, serious issues. And, and those people deserve our help and our empathy and, and our encouragement. He said, but other people often mark the time of their trauma as a turning point in their life where they learn something about themselves, where it gave them some perspective on life, where they decided that they were going to live their lives differently than they had before. And he said, I think you are one of those people. He said, you are thinking about it, you're writing about it, and you're putting it into perspective. And actually, not only Dr. Carter, but the, the speech pathology people encouraged me to, to write, to diary uh, about what I was thinking and feeling. And that's what started mm -hmm. the writing that is now 10 chapters of a book that I'm, I'm editing that I'm calling uh, All Risk. And so I thought, okay, so a trauma can actually be a turning point. That's great. I'm glad you think that about me. That gave me, um, that encouraged me to continue to, uh, to try and, and learn and grow from, from this. Um, now, I'm no angel. There were days I spent really feeling very sorry for myself and very mad about the world and just kind of a grumpy pain in the neck. So I'm not saying that, you know, I'm some virtuous saint-like person that floated into enlightenment after I got hit on the head by a truck. But, um, but I did manage to, I think, you know, make some, uh, make some lemonade out of this. Um, yeah. And uh, not long, about a year later, I was, I was back to work part-time and I was doing some, some talks about communication skills and storytelling. And I spoke to a veterans group and I was thinking about my talk to the veterans group. And these were returning veterans who were figuring out how to reassimilate into civilian life. And I was talking about communication skills so that they could present themselves most effectively. And I started to tell this story about Dr. Carter and how I asked him if I was being treated for PTSD. And I said to the group, I bet a lot of people think all of you have PTSD because you were in the military, right? And, and they all sort of nodded. They said, yes, you know, people often don't quite understand. Uh, what we've been through. Um, but I said, everyone has been through some kind of a trauma. Maybe you were when you were in the military or maybe at, at some other point in your life, something, a difficult, challenging thing happened. Um, but you don't have to define by that negatively. You don't have to automatically have post-traumatic stress disorder. So let's think about redefining what that acronym means. What if we called it post-traumatic self-discovery? 
post-traumatic self-discovery where through going through a difficult, challenging time, you've learned something, you've discovered something about yourself that allows you to move forward in a new and uh, a stronger way. Um, and I was surprised by the response this got. There were 30 or 40 people in the room. They all stood up and applauded. A uh, one particular veteran who was walking with a limp came over to me and gave me a big hug. It was great. So I think that reframing is, um, really seems to work. It really seems to have resonated with people. And um, perhaps for the emergency room nurses, they can say, they, you know, just to understand, for their patient, yes, you are going through some kind of a trauma now, and um, but look at you know, look at how tough you're being. Look at how you're fighting back the pain. Look at how you know. Look at how well you're doing as I stand here holding your hand and and stopping the bleeding. Um, maybe there's some strength that you will find from this to help you move forward. Maybe you will discover something new about yourself or about life that will make a difference. So, PTSD wow. can mean something different too. Yeah, that, that is a, such an inspirational story and so many, so many great takeaways for all of us to consider as we, um, you know, reflect on what we've all been through and what we need to go through still. I am really, really appreciative of you sharing um, so deeply your story, Sean. That's really amazing. Thank you. So Bridget, I think it's time for our favorite rapid fire. I'm going to hand this off to you, Bridget, so you can start us off. Great. So Sean... We have a couple rapid fire questions for you. Hopefully it won't feel like a test. Um, it should be fun. Okay. So John, what's the worst job you ever had? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I could talk about, you know, jobs I had as a kid where I was working in a fast food restaurant or you know, doing all sorts of things that weren't particularly um, motivating. But I think the worst job I ever had actually started out as the best job I ever had. The best job I ever had was running the aerial group where I felt as though I had landed at a place where my professional uh, experience and my personal skills and interests were combined. And I ran that company and grew it. It became the worst job when the company changed hands and I was working for an investment group who didn't really understand my passion for the work. They, they're, their measure of success was purely financial. And then it became the worst job because I wasn't working for a purpose anymore. I was working for purely for profit. Profit is good. We were making a profit, but without purpose, it became very disheartening. Um, I hope that, I, I, I'm sure that in the healthcare industry, um, because it is a for-profit industry, that can be quite a, a challenge. But I would imagine that becoming a nurse is much more of a vocation than a paycheck. And so I hope that your nurses can hold on to the purpose that is in their job versus um, simply the profit. I think that's very relevant. Um, but now, what's, what was the best job you ever had? You know, the best job I ever had is the job I'm doing right now. It's talking to you, uh, to you and Janie and to your audience um, and telling a story, which I love to do. And I hope a story that might have some lessons in it and some meaning that will um, improve other people's lives. So 
the job I'm doing right now, and particularly in this moment, is the best job I've ever had. That and being a grandfather. <laughs> oh, that has to be a great job, too. <laughs> um, so, go ahead, Sean, Yes, Sean, I'm curious to know, you said your wife um, is a nurse. I'm curious to know what it's like being married to a nurse. I, I know people always... Um, wonder, you know, if, if you're a nurse, I wonder what the person I'm partnered with or married to thinks about me being a nurse. What do you, what do you have to say about that? Well, my wife's name is Donna, as, as I mentioned uh, earlier, and I am inspired by her and being married to her is a real inspiration, particularly because, as I mentioned earlier, she decided to change her her professional life completely in, in her 50s and do something that uh, she really cared about and um, I think will make an excellent nurse practitioner. So that on that side of it, it is inspiring. However, there is something to, about being married to a nurse, um, which is a little bit more challenging because after Donna would spend a long shift caring for young children who needed, who had, you know, serious ailments and serious things wrong with them from stitches that they needed to have to other kinds of things like that. She often comes home uh, quite exhausted. And if I tell her that my leg hurts a little bit, she really doesn't have very much sympathy for me. <laughs> she just says, listen, buddy, suck it up. I've been fixing young children who are much worse off than you. So stop your whining and how about you make dinner? <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Well, we we want to just take a moment to wish Donna well on her upcoming uh, nurse practitioner boards. I'm sure she will. Thank I'm you. I'm sure she will pass those with flying. I well, she is certainly yeah. she has determination that is uh, that is a uh, amazing. And yeah. when I really needed care, she was there for me for sure. Oh, I'm sure. Right. She stopped right. at changing my bedpans. She said that <laughs> I'm not going to do. But, um, Hilarious. But I'll, I'll, uh, she took my stitches out, actually. Uh, they, they let her at the hospital. They let her take the stitches out from the surgery that was on my, uh, on my knee. Awesome. Well, Sean, tell us one last rapid fire question. What is your favorite book on leadership? We're always looking to, to enhance our reading list. So what is, what would you tell us? Boy, um, there are a lot, uh, but I think I will take this opportunity to plug a book that I contributed to writing. It's a book called Leadership Presence. Uh, it's, uh, it, it was written in 2004 or five, um, but it was written by Kathy Lubar and Belle Halpern, who were the women who founded the Aerial Group and for whom I worked for uh, 20 years. And we spent a lot of time writing that book together. And, I'm, and my storytelling actually appears several times in that book. I tell the story about my father as a, a stand-up comedian and how he used those skills as a leader in the business world. So I would, uh, it's, it's a great book. Um, it talks about the notion of presence, which is a very interesting concept. It's not necessarily about charisma. It's about being fully present for whatever audience you are with. Now that can be a patient or that can be an auditorium of 500 people. It's a different level of presence, but you still want to be fully present. You still want to uh, connect and, uh, and empathize with that person. You still want to communicate with them in a way that they can understand. And if possible, 
another part of their definition is to reveal something about who you are so that they can connect with you. I think it's relevant in all sorts of, um, all sorts of areas of, of leadership. And honestly, we are all individual leaders, whether you are an individual emergency room nurse having to take the initiative uh, with a particular patient or whether you're leading an entire hospital. We're all leaders. And so Leadership Presence, it's published by Penguin Press. And I would uh, I check it out. And I think my story about my dad is on page 106. <laughs> okay. Well, it is important to be present. And, and, you know, that's a good reminder because in 2020, everybody's going 50 million directions. So um, right. certainly whatever audience you're in front of, like you said, whether it's a patient or an auditorium, being, being fully present, it, present is important. So yeah. thank you for that. Now, Sean, if our audience would like to follow you uh, on the web or on social media, where can they find you? I have a website that is www.fullrisker.com. And there I have some of my writing, some stories, uh, some photographs of um, uh, my broken bicycle, actually, is one of the photographs. Um, and, I, and I have a blog that I, I am trying to, I'm trying to write uh, twice a month. And I'm getting back into that right, right now. So fullrisker.com or, and you can email me at sean.kavanaugh at fullrisker.com. But those, uh, all that information is, uh, is on, the, uh, on the website. And if anybody hears this and goes to the website and has a question or a comment or a story that they would like to tell that relates, please, uh, there's, there's a mechanism there for, for writing comments and, uh, or just shoot me an email. My email address is right there. I'd love to hear from people. Oh, that sounds great. Thank you so much, Sean. Bridget? Yep. Sean, I do want to take this time to thank you for joining us on this episode of BCN and Friends. Um, your stories are brilliant and phenomenal, and I think we've all learned from them. So thank you so much, Sean. And to all of our listeners, we hope you'll stay tuned as we continue on with the series and bring you new and meaningful content and perspectives. If you have suggestions for an episode topic, please, please email us at bcen at bcen.org. I'm Bridget Flood, here with Janie Shoemaker, and on behalf of the entire BCN team, we thank you and celebrate you for all that you're doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. And until next time, 